Hello, my loves. Welcome back. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos. I am your host, Natalie, and today I have the pleasure and honor of chatting with Dr. Hortensia Jimenez, who I came across through the wonderful world of social media. And the minute that I saw her work, it just, it struck a chord with me because it hit so close to home to my personal journey. And so Dr. Hortensia is a sociologist, an intuitive eating coach, a speaker, an author, a mother of two beautiful kids. Uh, Dr. Jimenez's work focuses on and centers on dismantling diet culture from a social and racial justice framework and helping Latinas, Latinx heal their relationship with food and body image, which has been such a big part of my healing journey. So Dr. Urfencia, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much for the invitation to share the space with you and your audience. Yes, of course. And so I don't even know where to start with you. I got a chance to listen to your podcast and it's such a resource of wonderful information. So for those listening, I highly recommend checking it out. And I think where I would like to start, because we can take this so many directions, is what does it mean to be a certified health professional from a non-diet approach? Yes. I got my health coaching certification and you learn the different theories of food, of diets and quote, healthy eating, kind of like the mainstream narratives. And it has been my own work of unlearning that and learning about healing your relationship with food and body image from a non-diet approach. So that means that the way that I approach healing body image and food is really centered on recognizing body diversity, recognizing that we have our own bio-individuality. We get to define what health is in our own ways. And it's also having a weight-neutral approach, meaning that we don't give value or place weight in a hierarchy or bodies in a hierarchy. Mm, wow. There's so much that you said that I think is so potent because the mainstream narrative is really toxic for folks who don't fit that framework, mm -hmm. right? And for folks who have different makeups, biologically, anatomically, cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at different ways to approach health, I know that you also focus on dismantling diet culture because that is so prevalent today. And while healthy eating, yes, is really beneficial, Mm -hmm. Diet culture can also be very harmful for a lot of people. And so I would like to start with breaking down the term diet culture. What does it mean to you? What have you seen it become in your work? And how have you seen it impact people? Yes, thank you for that opportunity to really share with your community as a woman of color, specifically as a Mexican immigrant of indigenous ancestry, is conceptualizing diet culture, the diet culture industry. And why I say that it's important because our positionality or lived experience experiences inform how we see the world and also allows us to challenge even the narrative of what is diet culture, because how diet culture has been defined, it has been by white middle-class 
cisgender white woman in the dietics and the field of nutrition. And I always felt that there was something missing that I couldn't resonate because I often think they are, they say that diet culture is based on these societal values about thinness and so forth. But for me, it's that and it's more. So I actually have my own definition and I'm going to share that with you and your community. So for me, diet culture is rooted in ideologies of white supremacy, capitalism, heteropatriarchy, notions of moral virtue, able body, classism, and all the isms. It's grounded in fat phobia that exploit and oppress fat people, BIPOC folks, the LGBTQ+, trans, non-binary community, people with disabilities, and other marginalized identities that society has deemed undesirable. So in other words, diet culture from my lens is rooted on systems of oppression that impact marginalized identities. But you know, it's so important to consider because it's so much deeper, especially diet culture impacts all folks. Let's be honest, especially those who identify as women, especially those who identify as women of color. Mm -hmm. And so from the lens of social and racial justice, Mm -hmm. what are some of the disparities of food and body image for BIPOC folks, for BIPOC women. Yes, thank you. These are important conversations, and I'm glad that you know you're offering this space to have this conversation because it's missing even in the undieting space. Basically, the undieting space is where you have health coaches and nutritionists and dietitians who are moving away from the diet culture narrative, right? And even then, like our voices and experiences are missing as women of color. It's the efforts of Black brown and indigenous women, right, that are talking about this. So for me, when I think about it as a sociologist from a social and racial justice lens is looking at the institutions that we have in our society, the family, the government, the media, the healthcare industry, and I can keep going with the institutions, how these institutions enforce ideologies that are oppressive, that ultimately impact marginalized folks. And if we're looking at BIPOC folks, it's like, how does racism impact our well-being, right? or our relationship with food and body image or access to food or access to healthcare, right? And that touches on like the social determinants of health. It touches on food insecurity, food apartheid. We're talking about how does discrimination even impact our well-being and even what we eat, right? So it's really looking at it from a big macro lens and saying, look, we can't just say like eat healthy when you're being discriminated or you're experiencing microaggressions or you're experiencing domestic violence at home or you're undocumented and you've been separated from your family, your father got deported, like all these external social forces, sometimes outside of our control, impact or access to food, our relationship with food, and ultimately like how we view and treat our bodies. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's a piece that gets forgotten about, especially in the realm of social media where well-intended, well-meaning people who have a nutrition background or are health wellness influencers might say a blanket statement that doesn't include all folks. And so it really marginalizes people who share a different experience, who maybe don't have access to organic foods down the street, or maybe don't have access to the resources, right? Or live in food deserts. Yes, absolutely. And it's 
part of this is how health has been conceptualized and how it has also been like co-opted by the wellness industry and elevating certain foods and placing food in a more hierarchy. That is part of diet culture. And like you said, these might be well-intentioned health professionals, but it can cause harm to communities of color and other marginalized communities. So that's why it's so important to like unpack our own conscious and unconscious biases and our own privilege when we are working and talking to communities. Beautifully said. And I'm curious, did your work in dismantling the oppressive nature of diet culture stem from a journey to self-healing on a personal level? For sure. Absolutely. That's why I am really passionate about this work and why I continue to do this work because it's rooted in my own lived experience and because I see the struggles in our communities of color and specifically, of course, since I'm Latina and our Latina Latinx community. So I hold privilege, even as a Mexican immigrant, I'm a naturalized US citizen, I speak English, I have an education, I have my profession, I'm thin. So I have to name my privileged identities that hold power in our society. It's not that I say as Hortensia, I have that power. No, it's that society, right? Because of our social identity, society says what identities are more socially acceptable and which social identities give you access and social currency in society, right? So by naming these social identities that I have that are privileged, yet though I'm a woman of color, right? I have to say that because I am thin, right? I don't know what it is to live in a bigger body, but I can talk about different forms of oppression in our society. And I grew up with a lot of food and body shaming, even though I'm thin, right? And a lot of the oppression that I went through growing up, I was raised in a very traditional Mexican immigrant household, working class, where, you know, religion played a big role. I was raised Catholic and it was very oppressive and enforcing heteronormativity, patriarchy, traditional gender roles. So I feel like I, even though I challenged a lot of these values and ideologies, I still felt a lot of oppression and it impacts how you show up. It impacts how you take space or not take space. And so I internalized a lot of oppression and it wasn't really until a decade ago, really. And this year, yeah, this last year where I've been doing a lot of inner healing by dismantling, I mean, challenging these internalized values and ideologies because it has affected my mental health, my well-being, and my relationship with myself. So yes, it is personal. And at the community societal level, I have three kids, I have two daughters and a son, and like it breaks my heart. And it really gets me so upset at the same time why young girls as ages like four and five, they're already starting to have body image struggles. And why? Porque en sus casas, la familia, like fat shaming and fat phobia is so common in, in our community, but it's not part of our culture, right? That's external. So if you have young girls already hitting their bodies and what's going to happen, they're going to engage in disorder eating and eventually may develop eating disorders and may even cause harm to themselves and may be in toxic relationships. Like it really impacts them in a bigger scale 
And yo no quiero que las jovencitas y los jóvenes estén pasando por esto. Y si están pasando por esto, if they're going through this, like being able to create this awareness and consciousness and offer strategies and how you can begin that healing journey and to say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect. And I even me saying that it's like, people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true, but we don't believe that because all our life we've been told differently, right? So that, that's why I'm so passionate about this because it's about my own experience, but this is a social issue as a sociologist. It is. And especially because you are anyone who stands up against the norm of what society tells us is the standard of beauty, the standard of health and questioning that it really takes a lot of courage because you're going against decades, hundreds of decades of a paradigm that you're trying to reshift and reconstruct. Absolutely. And if we just to allow myself to be vulnerable in this space, when you said decades or even centuries, I've been coming out to my family and close friends for the last three, four years. My inner niña Hortensia was never able to be queer growing up because of religion. You can only imagine that oppression, right? And I'm in my 40s. So yes, I'm healing for myself, but like I'm healing my ancestors. How many women in my lineage couldn't be queer, weren't allowed to be queer? So you can imagine like I'm healing for me, but I'm healing all the queer women in my life and my lineage from both sides of my family. This work is fucking hard. That's why it's hard. Like no one had the courage to do what I'm doing. So wow. just this is just an example of coming out as queer. It's like, no es así, no. From an ancestral indigenous lens, this is like colonialism. It's doing the decolonial work. This is not easy. It's so powerful that you're standing in your truth because... You're healing for the ancestors and for the future generations. You're this like bridge in between that is breaking the cycles, breaking the curses, breaking the paradigms. And there are so many people that are in this space of breaking generational cycles, of breaking generational beliefs that have been causing harm. And the harm has been suffered in silence, which I think is the hardest part. And so to stand up and say, I'm not alone in this, you're not alone in this, it's so empowering for people listening who might be experiencing or have loved ones in their lives who are experiencing the same thing. Because it does take a lot of courage. It does. For me, courage is being able to still take that step forward and whatever it is when you have fear, when you have anxiety, when you don't know of the unknown, cuando te tiembla el cuerpo, te palpita el corazón, like everything and you still do it you know and for me what has been helpful and what I try to bring in into my work is connecting to your ancestry everyone has ancestry right we all have ancestors but also connecting to our indigeneity for me that has been healing so part of my pedagogy and my lens of healing from diet culture is bringing ancestral knowledge and wisdom because that has worked for me. And I'm saying it's going to work for everyone, but it is part of the art, the colonial work. It's also challenging these Western health frameworks. I do therapy, but I also 
do ancestral teachings, I do ceremony, I do a lot of different things. Y eso me ha ayudado bastante. Y son mis ancestors, and it has been my ancestors who have been guiding me in this very difficult journey while I feel alone, physically alone. I have them behind me. They're with me, you know? I would not be doing this work if it wasn't for their strength and wisdom. I'm curious because I think you touched on something earlier going back to the hierarchy of food and bridging it with what you're talking about now of like challenging the Western framework that doesn't fit our ancestral makeup. What I mean by that is I am Salvadoreña. I grew up in a Salvadoreña immigrant household myself and my foods, my traditional foods are pupusas and tamales and really delicious, vibrant foods that don't necessarily fit the mold of healthy exactly. foods in mm -hmm. Western society. Exactly. And so what are your thoughts on the intersection mm -hmm. of healthy foods and cultural foods mm -hmm. from a nutrition standpoint? I just want to hear your thoughts because yes. I, even myself, as a person who is reclaiming her roots, her heritage, I still find myself vilifying my own yes. cultural foods because it's yes. what the world tells me, right? Yes. So what would you say to that? Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for being honest, right? And, and saying this out loud so we can normalize that these are real struggles and these are thoughts that we continue to have because we have been conditioned to see our own culture foods as inferior, as less than, as unhealthy. So bringing in my hat, both as a sociologist and a health coach is understanding cellular colonialism and the legacy of that and how we have been conditioned to think about culture foods. When the Spanish arrived, they vilify our indigenous foods. It's on the record, right? Cómo miraban las comidas, lo que decían de nuestras comidas y de nuestros ancestros. So that's where it begins with colonialism and not only placing our foods at, in this lower hierarchy, but placing our own indigenous bodies, our own ancestral wisdom and like everything, our culture, todo lo que pasó, the genocide, right? So de allí viene, we want to undo 500 years, like, pues claro que this is not easy, right? So it's understanding that we're talking about settler colonialism and that health professionals are the ones who've historically why, have had access to information, to knowledge, what knowledge It gets legitimized in our society. What knowledge gets to be published in peer review articles? I wrote a chapter from one of my books. It's on the history of, it's basically looking at food from a racial lens. And early dietitians and nutritionists had very racist, overt ideas about cultural foods. It was so racist. And you say like, well, we're in 2024. Yes, some people may still be overtly racist, but that's not going to get published in a peer-reviewed journal. What it's going to be published is as healthifying, that these are healthy, these are superfoods. Yeah, like our ancestral foods are superfoods, but now you have someone who is thin and white and middle class and cisgender who's saying that when our ancestors have been saying that for thousands of years, but pero, pero no importa, right? Porque los miran less than. So I don't know if that helps address the question. I was like, that's where it's rooted in, right? So then what does that mean? That means is 
how do we begin to then heal? We have to do that healing and then also embrace our culture foods. Look at all the vitamins, the mineral, the nutrients that our culture foods give us, not only just like the nutritional aspect, but the cultural belonging and sense of identity and pride and connection and community, everything that the wellness industry can, will never be able to connect to our culture foods in that way. They can culturally appropriate them if they want, but esa conexión ancestral, Esa la tenemos, right? Así es de que it's a lot of the reprogramming. When you see your pupusa, you have protein, you have carbs, you have fats, you have veggies, con the carrots, el vinagre, and then if you put oregano, I, you know, I'm not an expert on how to make pupusas, <laughs> but you know, the el cultivo. Like, yes, so maybe the way that, like you said earlier, we don't need to have a bowl of salad. Maybe our culture foods don't look that way. No, I didn't grow up eating salads. I did not grow up eating salads the way that I see it in the mass media. I grew up eating salads, but they look differently. Eran papas con huevo y bayonesa, and it had celery and other veggies, right? But that's not seen as healthy, right? So again, who gets to define what is healthy? And it's usually never from the lens of BIPOC communities. And it's so empowering. Thank you for that. It's so empowering to remember that there are many different ways to look at a plate and plates can look very different. And in the similar vein, I think you talk about body image frameworks, right? In the same vein of a bowl of salad in the American diet might look very different from how we put together a bowl of vegetables that constitute as vegetables, greens, grains, what have you. Let's talk about body image frameworks because the when I was studying your work, it's the first time I ever heard that terminology. So I would love to break down what body image framework means and how it impacts people with different body types. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, again, for these important conversations. So in the wellness industry and even in the undieting space, so like we hear body positivity, body neutrality, part of body positivity is como aceptar nuestro cuerpo, what our body is able to do, like the self-love, all that stuff. Body neutrality is just not placing your body in a more hierarchy, be like being neutral about your body and recognizing what it's able to do for you. But I think what we need, the conversations that we need to have and the conversations that Black women are leading, right, in this undying space is we need to move away from body positivity, body neutrality, or even body confidence to body liberation. And that means to the body is liberating ourselves from these oppressive narratives, challenging these oppressive narratives and coming to a place in your body where you feel liberated and you have that freedom or feel that you can have that freedom to be able to do things without having to conform to these standards or that you have to be thin. And I want to push that a little bit forward and say, body liberation to body sovereignty, right? That we are sovereign bodies. And this touches on like reproductive justice. You know, I'm sure that like women of color, historically, their bodies have been scrutinized by the nation state. Women of color were for were sterilized back in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, you know, black, indigenous, Native American women, 
That's why body sovereignty is important, right? Entonces, las conversaciones que tenemos que tener, that I move away from body positivity, yes, it's important, but from a social and racial justice lens, body liberation and body sovereignty, we just have to look at what's happening in the world right now. Some bodies are not, they're not sovereign. They're still settler colonialism. I'm so happy I was muted because I literally was like wooing and snapping because <laughs> wow, 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 wow. I did not expect that to go there and I'm so happy it did. You know, you think body neutrality, body acceptance, like even just saying those words, I just feel like blah. You know, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Body liberation, body sovereignty. I mm. mean, that just feels like such a yes. And it's so true because there is so much oppression tied into all of it for BIPOC folks that looking at body frameworks, everybody is so different, especially throughout different races, not just from the standpoint of skin color, but what our ancestors needed to evolve into to survive in the geographical places where they lived, right? And to try and fit everybody into one framework is a form mm -hmm. of oppression to say how mm -hmm. your ancestors evolved and who you are today isn't good enough. When in reality, we are ancestors' greatest dreams. <laughs> and to yes. take on that embodiment of body liberation, body sovereignty is just, mm -hmm. oof, it's so good. Yes. And one thing I forgot to say about this is that you can also move in the spectrum, right? So we're not here to, sh like, you can be and depending where you're at in your life, maybe right now you're in body positivity and like the self-love and those affirmations, that thing is not, doesn't work for me right now anymore. Not anymore. You can be in body neutrality. You can shift throughout the day how you feel about your body. That's how fluid this is. Diet culture wants us to remain static, right? But Part of these body frameworks is that we can, like, it's fluid. Podemos cambiar en el transcurso del día because we got triggered by something, that something happened. Or we're, like, really good. We feel amazing, like, body liberation on Monday. And then midweek, something happens. And then Friday. So know that it's a spectrum and that we can basically transition. We can move in and out of these different frameworks throughout the week and even throughout the day. And there's nothing wrong. So let's normalize the, this fixation to remain static, to feel static in our bodies, which is ridiculous, right? You can't. <laughs> Thank you for that permission because it also helps being in the realm of like, you have to be body sovereign, body liberation all the time. The reality is we're human and we mm -hmm. have fluctuations of emotions based on the circumstances that we're in. So thank you for reminding us that we also have the permission to be anywhere on that spectrum, even if it begins to move into body shaming and recognizing like mm -hmm. we can move mm -hmm. back into whatever degree of the spectrum that we're in yes. and just continuing to be compassionate with ourselves. Absolutely. Like they can coexist and intersect. And you know what? Sometimes it just doesn't have to make sense. And that is still okay because you're struggling and trying to figure out that's still okay. Like that's part of undieting. That's part of healing. That's part of a social and racial justice lens. Like that this, excuse my language, this shit is complicated. This is not easy. It's messy, complicated. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. So we got to give ourselves a lot of 
compassion as we are healing and getting to know ourselves and our body. That's it. And you're also a certified intuitive eating counselor. And for those who might be new to intuitive eating, what are some of the ways that someone can engage with intuitive eating? This The podcast is called Practical Alchemy because I believe that alchemy is present in every day of our lives. And alchemy can be very magical, and it is, but also it can be very practical. So what are some of the practical ways that someone can engage with intuitive eating? And why is intuitive eating even helpful? Why should somebody yeah. be curious about it? Yes. And this is going to be like a little plug. You know, my podcast is called Dismantling Diet Culture, Fuck Being Calladita. And I talk about the framework of intuitive eating and I talk about each of these uh, principles. So the principle of intuitive eating is a scientifically based framework. So there's scholarly research on published on this area. It is by nutritionists, dietitians. And the framework behind this is that there's 10 steps to heal your relationship with food and body image from a non-diet approach. And first is recognizing what is diet culture and recognizing that we, even myself, right, we have internalized a lot of the diet culture narrative about how we view food, right? Like you said, we vilify our culture foods or we think that certain bodies are beautiful or better, esas cosas, right? So it's like rejecting the diet mentality is one of the main principles. It is actually the first principle. The second principle is honor your hunger. And you think like, honor your hunger. Like if you're hungry, eat. Así de fácil, right? It seems so easy, eat. But because of the diet culture mentality, you can't really honor your hunger because you're going to restrict and deprive yourself, right? That's the second principle. The third principle is make peace with food. And making peace with food is that food neutrality, not placing food in a moral hierarchy, not, look, not getting fixated on the nutritional content of the food, but what food is able to do, honoring your cravings, the satisfaction, finding like that pleasure, right? Principle number four is challenge the food police. And the food police is basically the family, friends, community, everything in our society that tells us what you should eat, how much you should eat, what you can eat, cannot eat, what's good, what's bad, all the food rules, you know, that's kind of what it is. It's like the food rules that we follow. So if you're listening, I invite you to think about, okay, what are some food rules that you grew up, you know, listening to or abiding because your family said so, right? So that's principle number four. Principle number five is discover the satisfaction factor. And diet culture takes away that pleasure in food because you're scared of gaining weight. You're scared of eating or finding pleasure on the dessert or a flan or pan dulce or whatever it is. So part of healing from an intuitive eating a lens is enjoy, like find pleasure and satisfaction. Like eating can be sexy and fun too. <laughs> Principle number six is feel your fullness. And that's like we honor our hunger is honoring when we're full, like listening to those signals that your body sends you, que ya, ya se llenó, that you're comfortably full, that you're not going to overeat. I have a couple of thoughts right after I finish the principles, right? So that's principle number six. Number seven is cope with your emotions with kindness. So a lot of folks may engage in emotional eating, may restrict mentally. So maybe you are allowing yourself, you're breaking from the food rules, you're allowing a food in 
let's say cookies or ice cream, no sé, something that you're scared of eating and you're allowing it, you're eating it, but then you're having this self-sabotaging thoughts, then you're really not giving yourself the unconditional permission to eat because you have those limiting thoughts, right? So it's also like recognizing or emotions and our thoughts that we have as we are engaging in this eating process. Principle number eight is respect your body, recognizing body diversity, our genetic blueprint, as you mentioned earlier, right? Like we're different. We're not supposed to be molded into one standard type of body, right? So respecting your body is like honoring your sleep, taking care of it, getting enough sleep and rejecting, of course, the diet mentality and not like self-sabotaging and, and saying negative things about yourself and your body, right? We are our worst critics and we cause ourselves harm by just the way that we talk to ourselves. So principle number eight, respect your body is like, no te digas cosas feas. Because other people will tell you anyway, right? So why are you telling yourself that? Principle number nine is movement, feel the difference is engaging in any type of movement. And this is important because another industry in diet culture is the fitness industry. The fitness industry is very toxic that of course promotes a lot of weight loss, like no pain, no gain, all this stuff. And I'm guilty of engaging in that type of behavior when I was young. So moving your body where you can find joy, that exercising, doesn't have to be going to the gym. It can be gardening. It can be just doing other stuff. Anything that has to do with movement, like just move your body, right? So like having it like more in a neutral framework of exercise. And the last principle is honor your health, gentle nutrition. So basically like honoring your taste buds, eating the foods that bring you joy, that even bring you comfort, that bring you connection to your family, you know, all that beautiful stuff that we carry. And gentle nutrition means too, like being able to slowly break away from those food rules and also like not vilifying the food or having these binaries of good versus bad, or I shouldn't have this, or I shouldn't eat these chips or oh, lo que sea, right? And ultimately, you know, part of gentle nutrition of this last principle is that there's no perfect way of eating. There's no perfect way. And how we eat will change throughout the week, right? Because it depends if we got enough sleep, are we stressed out? What's our situation at home, at work? All oh, that's going to impact our nutrition. So progress over perfection. So those are the 10 principles of intuitive eating. So it's like a step process. It's a guide, a framework on divesting from diet culture. That is so powerful. And it reminds me, it's so funny. Last night, I was having so much anxiety about these things that are coming up. And I found myself just like eating a bunch of chips. And then I found myself in the guilt loop. I was like, oh my God, it's so late. I just eat this whole bag of chips. And then I found myself in the compassion of like, my body's just trying to soothe itself. And it was such a beautiful process of maybe I wasn't intuitive in the moment that I was eating the chip, but I had a moment of reflection of being like, wow, food serves so many purposes from fueling, from pleasure, from connection. So thank you for sharing those principles. Yes. And I did say that these are the principles of intuitive eating, but I also have constructed feedback and criticisms of these principles 
because it lacks a social and racial justice lens. So while I unpack each of these principles in my own podcast and on the social media work I do, and in general, it's always but or and, right? So for example, honor your hunger. Well, that's privilege. Not everyone is able to honor their hunger. Let's talk about like, what kind of job do you have, right? Do you have a break? Do you have lunch? I'm an immigrant. I grew up working in the fields. And like during the summer, when the crop are ready to be picked, you get paid by the boxes of strawberries or raspberries. So people are going to be working, you know, mucho para hacer más dinero. Entonces, you're not going to honor really your hunger because you want to make sure because that's the high peak season to work. So there's a lot of nuances within the framework. And it is women of color right who are calling these issues right and saying no actually that's privilege the authors of these frameworks are coming from a privileged place and identities and it doesn't speak to the experiences of BIPOC folks and other marginalized groups but it's still a good framework totally totally and it's like with all framework you find what works for you and then what doesn't you kind of figure out a way to make it work for you or completely say, this isn't for me and find something that fits. And I just find that you have so much wisdom. Thank you for sharing it all. And for those who are curious about learning more about any of the topics that Dr. Hortensia mentioned, I definitely recommend her podcast. I was checking it out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. So you're doing amazing work. And for those who want to connect deeper with you, what are some of the ways that people can find you? Yes, at the moment I'm on Instagram and less so on TikTok and it's at Dr. Hortensia Jimenez. Uh, and I'm sure you'll put that on the show notes. So I won't spell it out. Please go and support my podcast you know, by following it, leaving a review, sharing it with others. Why it's an important because it is one of the few podcasts for and by a person of color from a social and racial justice lens. So our representation matters and our experiences matter. And the guests that I bring in come from different marginalized social identities, right? And so I'm hoping to be addressing, right, such an important gap in the wellness industry, especially the undieting. Working on a course, I'm hoping to launch it sometime in the spring semester. And spring semester, I'm thinking as a professor in the spring. <laughs> and it's going to be on my own framework, actually. It's going to be my own framework that's going to be rooted on a social racial justice and indigenous lens, like indigenous knowledge and ancestral wisdom in healing food and body image. So please follow, support my work. And whenever my offering is available, that you can support it as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Jimenez. I can't wait for that course to come out. It sounds like it's something that is needed in our society. There isn't really anything like that. So thank you for your work. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your time today and I'll see you soon. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you very much.